Hi, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor of Icon Church. And before the sermon starts, I just wanted to say a couple things. First is that I hope this sermon is a blessing to you, that it encourages you during this time of uncertainty uh, and, and also pushes you forward in your relationship with Christ. Second, uh, if you want more resources and more information, go to iconchurch.org slash rule for life and you'll find a ton of resources about this series and about our church. So God bless and enjoy the message. Hey Icon, Pastor Justin here. It is good to see you. I uh, hope you're doing well and I uh, hope you're surviving all of this quarantine and stay at home stuff. I don't know about you, I am feeling mostly bored right now and I know uh, that this is affecting all of us a little bit differently. So uh, hang in there. We've got, looks like several more weeks of this, um, but we are in the middle of a series we're calling A Rule for Life. And uh, we're a couple weeks into this series that um, is talking about what uh, Christians for many generations have called a rule of life. And a rule of life, very simply, is just a series of practices that we commit ourselves to um, that we believe will allow us to grow in our faith, right? And so we have talked about reading the Bible and we talked about prayer. And today we're talking about silence and solitude. Now, this may seem like a strange time to be talking about silence and solitude since we are all in this kind of forced solitude. And many of you, especially those of you who are single, who live alone, you are experiencing like forced solitude in ways that you would never desire. But here's the thing. I actually think silence and solitude has never been more important than it is right now. Because yes, we are quarantined to our homes right now, but that's not what silence and solitude is all about. Silence and solitude is not just being alone. It is far more than that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said this, We live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private and therefore starved for meditation and true friendship. Now, he said that in 1945. If that was true, that we live in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, if that was true in 1945, how much true is that, how much truer is that for us today? In a world where everything beeps at us and dings at us and gives us notifications and tries to take our attention. In fact, Matthew Crawford, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called The World Beyond Your Head. And in an interview he gave about that book, he says this, kind of a longish quote, but it's worth it. He says, these experiences, the apps and the ads that demand our attention, these experiences are so exquisitely attuned to our appetites that they can swamp your ordinary way of being in the world. Just as food engineers have figured out how to make food hyper palatable by manipulating fat, salt, and sugar, Similarly, the media has become expert at making irresistible mental stimuli. Distraction, he says, is a kind of obesity of the mind with results that could be just as hazardous for our health. He goes on, I said, I, he says, I realized how pervasive this has become, these little appropriations of attention. Figuring out ways to capture and hold people's attention is the center of contemporary capitalism. There is this invisible and ubiquitous grabbing at something that's the most intimate thing you have because it determines what's present to your consciousness. 
He points out that the only quiet, distraction-free place in the airport is the business class lounge, where all you hear is the occasional tinkling of a spoon against China. Silence has become a luxury good. The people in there value their silence very highly. If you're in that lounge, you can use the time to think creative, playful thoughts. You could come up with some brilliant marketing scheme that you would then use to determine the character of the peon section. You can think of it as a transfer scheme, excuse me, you can think of it as a transfer of wealth. Attention is a resource convertible into actual money. Right? And we experience this all the time, that, that there are uh, kind of stimulus all around us that's trying to grab our attention and just saying over and over and over, look at me, pay attention to me, focus on me, do what I tell you to do, listen to me. And when we are quarantined in our homes and don't have as much freedom to get out and be with people, we find ourselves before more and more and more screens that are dinging and buzzing and beeping at us, inviting us into basically everything, right? So silence and solitude are ways we fight. We fight for space in our lives to think and to meditate on things that really matter. So what is silence and solitude? First, Silence and solitude are paired together because the point of the practice is to give your attention to God. You stop talking and you stop listening to anything else except for God. Silence and solitude is simply making space to be quiet and experience quiet so that you can focus on listening to God. Okay, so be quiet and to experience quiet. So silence and solitude come together to create space to just be in the presence of God. Second, silence and solitude is meant to be a complement to healthy relationships. We're going to talk about this later in the message, but silence and solitude actually enables healthy relationships in ways we maybe haven't thought about. So this is not a call to go be a monk and live in a cave. This is a call to it sometimes in order to keep your relationships healthy, to go away by yourself and focus on God and to be able to hear your own brain think without the distractions of everyday life. Third, Sounds and solitude aren't meant to be a break for you. It's not rest and relaxation per se. It's not me time, it's he time. Okay, I, I can't even say that with a straight face, that's terrible. But we're gonna roll with it, okay? It's not me time, it's he time. It's time that you set aside to be with God. That's the point. This isn't my life's crazy and the kids are nuts and I just need some me time and so you, pull, you pour a bath and, and go sit with the bubbles. That's not what this is. This is time dedicated to focus on God and to be with God. Okay, we have framed up all of these spiritual practices as relational, formational and missional, right? Relational, formational, and missional. That they are primarily relational in the sense that they connect us relationally to God. They are formational, meaning they are meant to form us into new kinds of people, actually form our character. And then that they are missional, that they are ways in which we are enabled and empowered to be on the mission that God has given us, that they work themselves out in really practical ways, okay? So as we've done for the last couple of weeks, I want us to see this practice in that paradigm of relational, formational, missional. So first, relational. 
Christians often look to Jesus to be their guide for how to be in the world, right? Uh, John Mark Comer said, in order to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And that is a fantastic word to us, that if we want to see the outcomes in Jesus' life, the power, the peace, the contentment, then we have to adopt the lifestyle. We have to make the choices day in and day out that Jesus made. And so we look to the scriptures and specifically the gospels, and we see Jesus practicing silence and solitude. In fact, two times in particular jump out at me. Right at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, says this, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that Satan's temptation happened at the end of those 40 days. So Jesus spent 40 days out in the wilderness by himself before he embarked upon his ministry. It says he was out in the wilderness with the wild animals and that the angels were ministering to him. Now, where you are, probably not a lot, a lot of wild animals, but perhaps you can find some space for solitude with the raccoons and the squirrels, maybe a local rabbit. I mean, we're not all living in the wilderness like Jesus, but we do the best we can here in Seattle, okay? So this was, this was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He created the space to be out in the wilderness to focus his attention on God in preparation for the task that he had before him. And then at the very end of his life, in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 36, in his moment of greatest stress, it says this, they went to a place called Gethsemane. This is Jesus and his disciples. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So two times, and there were many more times that the scriptures tell us that Jesus went off by himself to pray. But these two times in particular, in preparation for his life in ministry, and then in his moment of greatest need. I mean, Jesus, the God-man, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate in flesh, says that his soul was sorrowful even to death. And what was his response? He took three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, went off by himself and then asked them, will you pray for me while I go and have some solitude time with my father? And he prayed, Abba, Father, Daddy, please, all things are possible for you. Please take this cup from me. Jesus knew that in his moment of greatest need, he needed time with God. In preparation for ministry, he needed time with God. You need God. Solitude connects you to him in a unique way and reminds you of your constant need for him, which, you know, in a moment we might say, of course, yeah, I need God. I know I need God. I don't need to be reminded of that. And yet you do. You forget it a million times a day, how much you actually need him and rely upon him right? And this happens to us in all kinds of different ways, right? So in my marriage, my wife and I, Emily and I, 
We'll often notice that when we get a chance to go away by ourselves, whether that's out of town for a couple days or just get like a long day to ourselves without all the kids around, without anyone else around, we remember how much we love each other. We remember how much we need each other. We remember how much we like each other. In fact, this literally every time we get time away from each other, we have this moment where we go, man, I like you. You're pretty great. I you know, kind of forgot how much I like you. And you kind of forget how much you love God and how much you need God. So I'm not going to say that silence and solitude is date night with Jesus because that would be ridiculous. And no one should say that. But it's not not that, right? Like the same way you need devoted time with your husband, wife, or best friend to maintain intimacy and relationship, you need those kinds of moments with God as well, and silence and solitude provides it. Okay, that's the relational piece. Formational. Turn to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30 is this kind of amazing moment in Isaiah. It's one of my favorite chapters where Isaiah is just calling out the people of Israel in a way that I think all of us can relate to. Starting in verse 1, he says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, without asking my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. God comes to Israel and goes, listen, you want to do this thing your own way? You want to find your own protection? You want to find your own strength? You want to find your own direction and make your own plan without me? Well, you know what? Have at it, if that's what you're going to do. And he calls them stubborn children as a result. Now, skip down to verse 15. It says, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Let me read that again. Israel has, has, has enemies all around them. And their plan has been to make alliances, not with God, but with other powers. Their plan has been to run hard and to fight hard and seek protection from Pharaoh and to make a, a whole strategy outside of the will of God. And God comes to them to remind them to say, in returning to me and in rest, you shall be saved. Not in planning and strategy and physical human alliances. He says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The nearer you come to me, the stronger you will be. He goes on, but you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one and the threat of five. You shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Listen to that. God comes to Israel and says, listen, you, you run, you make your own plans, you see enemies, you see danger, and you strategize, you make a plan, you make an alliance, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. You never consult me. You never come to me. I remind you that your strength is in your rest and in your quietness. 
that the nearer you are to me, the more dependent you are on me, the stronger you are, and the more able to cope with your enemies you will be. But you don't. You run. You flee. You say, well, we've got fast horses, and so we'll run away. But guess what? Your enemies have fast horses too, and there's no horse fast enough to flee from other fast horses. You get nowhere. And then he says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That God goes, I'm, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to be available to you. And if you want real strength, and if you want real peace, you'll come to me and sit at my feet and be quiet and rest and relax with me and stop hurrying around and running around and, and gripping to these means of strength that you think are going to get you through these times. Um, the American missionary David Brainerd was famous for his mission work to native peoples here in our country. And he overcame a, a ton of obstacles and challenges and threats and sickness and near death. And he said this in one of his journals. He said, I withdrew to my usual place of retirement in great peace and tranquility, spent about two hours in secret duties, and felt much as I did yesterday morning, only weaker and more overcome. I seemed to depend wholly upon my dear Lord, wholly weaned from all other dependences. I knew not what to say to my God, but only lean on his bosom, as it were, and breathe out my desires after a perfect conformity to him in all things. Thirsting desires and insatiable longings possessed my soul after perfect holiness. God was so precious to my soul that the world with all of its enjoyments was infinitely vile. I had no more value for all the favor of men than pebbles. The Lord was my all, and that he overruled all greatly delighted me. I think my faith and dependence upon God scarce ever rose so high. I saw him such a fountain of goodness that it seemed impossible I should distrust him again or be any way anxious about anything that should happen to me. Solitude can remind us where our strength lies and allow us for a moment to have the proper perspective on our strengths that we have been clinging to, those dependences that Brainerd spoke to, and to actually see them for the weakness and frailty that they are. It allows us to be weak in the presence of our God. It allows us to be weak in his strength, which then prepares us for the mission that we've been given. And in, in, in some of the language we've used during this series, part of the mission that we've been given, especially at a moment like this, and the opportunity that we have as Christians is to be a non-anxious presence for our neighbors and for our family members. And we can do that. We can be shaped into the kinds of people who are not anxious by being in the presence of God and remembering the strength that we actually have to know that it's not all up to us. And so when it feels like the, the world is getting out of our control and it's slipping from our grasp and we are tempted to either grab for it again and try harder or to give up and make excuses and blame shift or whatever our temptation might be, that when we actually just sit in the presence of God, we go, God is my strength 
and I know I'm not strong enough to do all this, so I can admit my weakness. I can admit that I don't have the power to get everything done that I need to get done. I don't have the power to prevent any of what's coming down the road. I just don't, but I know God does, and therefore we can be calm and content and at peace as a result, and we can do so for the people around us. There's a remarkable moment in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 4, verses 40 to 42, Jesus has been healing people and performing miracles and serving people and, and doing all kinds of stuff. And it's interesting to see what he does right in the very middle of it. It says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Hear this. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. This is kind of amazing, right? Jesus, all powerful, powerful enough to heal, to drive out demons, to take care of all of the needs of these people, spends the evening doing that, wakes up early in the morning and escapes, goes out to a desolate place by himself. And the people actually follow him out there and would have kept him from leaving. But Jesus understands that he has to have these times of solitude and silence in order to be for the people what they need him to be. Donald Whitney, who wrote a great book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, says this. He says, put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a moment. People are clamoring for your help and have many real needs. You are able to meet those needs. Can you ever feel justified in pulling away to be alone? Jesus did. We love to feel wanted. We love the sense of importance, power, indispensability that comes from doing something no one else can do. But Jesus did not succumb to those temptations. He knew the importance of disciplining himself to be alone. Time alone with God reminds you that he is your strength and he is your neighbor's strength. See, we're, we're all tempted. When we forget that God is our strength and we think we can handle it ourselves, that we have to handle it ourselves, we can also be tempted to think that we are strong enough for everybody else, that we are the answer, that we are the savior, that we get to be the strong one for all the people around us. And that's a terrible lie that will ultimately cause you to fail not only yourself, but fail the people around you. Because you're grasping at a job, you're grasping at a role that nobody has given you to do. You're asking yourself to be God for people, and you can't. So when we get into times of silence and solitude, that we understand that God is our strength and God is our neighbor's strength as well. It is only when you know the source of real power that you can be of any real help that you can be of any real peace to the people around you. My daughter, Penny, um, has nightmares uh, pretty often. She's pretty sensitive to scary stuff. If we're watching a scary movie or something that she um, regularly struggles with nightmares and she always wants me to cuddle with her when she's feeling scared at night and she just clings to me and won't let me go. And I have felt this subtle temptation in those moments to go, 
baby, I will never let anything happen to you. I, have you seen these arms? There is no bad guy who can overcome this. It just is impossible. Like it, I, I will protect you. I will keep you safe. Like I, that's the temptation in me is to claim that I can be her protector, that I can be her savior. And I have to actually discipline myself and remember that, no, like I have to demonstrate for her that our only hope is that God is our protector, that God is strong enough to protect us from any bad guys or any floods or whatever it is that she's afraid of that night, that it's God. And so when I sit with her, I want to tell her and I do tell her, like, listen, let's pray. Let's pray that God will protect us. I can't protect you all the way, but God can. And so it, it, it's amazing because in that moment, I can resist the temptation to try to be her strength. And if I'm all she has, she's in big trouble because, yeah, I'm very strong, but the, I, I'm not strong enough to overcome everything that's bad in her life. I am not powerful enough to protect her from everything. I'm just not. And so I have to be a witness to her of the greater strength of God that he can provide, he can protect, he loves her more than even I can. And so I have to draw her trust to God. But here's, it doesn't end there. It's not just that I pray for her and move on. I then stay with her and I do cuddle with her and I end up falling asleep there maybe at eight o'clock at night. And maybe I should go to bed earlier. But listen, the point is I can point her to God and still embody my trust in God with her. My presence with her, pointing to God, but then showing her that I'm not scared, not because I'm strong, but because God's strong allows me to be that non-anxious presence with it still not being about me. It's about God, but she's able to see my trust in God and go, wow, okay, if someone that strong and that powerful and that protective and that good looking is still dependent on God, then gosh, God must be really great, okay? So we can embody and point to and, and, and to be able to kind of bear witness to the greater strength of God with the people around us. And that is offering real help. The counterintuitive nature of the gospel is that when you try to be strong, you are at your weakest. When you try to be competent, you are at your most incompetent. When you try to be sufficient, you are at your most insufficient. But when you are weak and you know that you are weak and you know that you are unable to be for people what they really need, it forces you to go to God in silence and solitude to experience the real strength and then take that strength back into the world with you. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 says this, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus demonstrated this on the cross. His moment of greatest apparent weakness was actually the moment of his greatest strength. 
The moment where he overcame Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. Where he blazed the trail where there was no trail. Where he made a way where there was no way. And invites us to walk with him. To walk in our own weakness. To walk in our own humility. To walk in our own death so that we can experience his life, his power, and his strength. But we will not see it if we do not pay attention to it if we don't constantly remind ourselves of our need for him, our dependence upon him, his strength, his patience, and his love. Therefore, Isaiah says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He's waiting right now to shower his grace upon you, to demonstrate his strength to you, to give you his strength. Go to him now. Be with him and experience the strength of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are strong and we don't have to be. God, it is just a constant temptation for us to try to be strong. It is a constant temptation for me to be self-sufficient. It's a constant temptation for me to be great, to be powerful, to be enough, to be enough for myself and to be enough for my family, to be enough for my church, to be enough for my friends, to be enough for everyone. But if I have to be enough, everyone around me is in dire peril. You are enough. And the the greatest thing I can do for those around me, the greatest way I can serve those around me, the greatest way we can all serve those around us is by being near to you, leaning fully on your strength and pointing others to your strength so that we can all lean on you together and experience the goodness, the grace, and the strength that you have to offer us. I pray that we would do this in moments in minutes, in hours, in days, that we would set aside time for silence and solitude. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.